you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. You don't know where that is? Start in Revelation, go backwards. About 45 books, you'll be there. It's in the Minor Prophets, right before Obadiah, the shortest book of the Bible. So find Obadiah and you'll be there. We have all heard of the disorder, the eating disorder, referred to as anorexia. Anorexia is an interesting disorder because people who suffer from it, they undergo voluntary starvation. They see themselves as being overweight when in reality they are skin and bones and starving to death. They are not starving because they don't have food available, but because they will not eat. And many professing Christians around the world have a strain of spiritual anorexia. They see themselves as being biblically literate, educated in sound doctrine, but in reality, they are starving to death. They are not starving because they don't have a Bible but because they will not read it and they will not study it. They will not do what it takes to have God's word engraved upon their heart. They will not be nourished by the pure milk of the word. And for one reason or another, they bring famine upon their own soul. According to Webster's Dictionary, a famine is a great shortage of food. And there are several reasons why famines occur. Sometimes there are insect plagues and some kind, sometimes disease. Sometimes, you know, different crop failure. Usually it's lack of food or lack of water. Whenever there is a lack of water, almost every one of the other ones happen. And the people who undergo famine, start to starve and they're malnourished and they get sick and diseased and eventually die. Well, in the book of Amos, we encounter all the normal kinds of famine. And we also encounter one unique kind of famine, a famine which appears nowhere else in the Bible. Amos was a prophet who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember, when Solomon died, the kingdom split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king of the ten northern tribes, and Rehoboam was the king of the southern tribe of Judah. And Amos lives in Judah, but is a prophet to the ten northern tribes of Israel. And you need to remember that during Amos' time, the people of Israel were what was under what was called the Deuteronomic Covenant. A covenant which God made when He brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, first stated in Leviticus and then in more detail in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and following. It was a covenant of blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. If they were to obey God and do what God said, then God would bless them. And if they disobeyed God and they did not do what God said, He would curse them and bring all of these heinous things upon them. Well, Amos is ministering to Israel, and they are suffering to one degree or another for hundreds of years under these curses because they just will not obey God. And the theme of Amos is the judgment of God. Judgment which comes upon them primarily because of two prominent sins. The first sin is they were being unjust. Because of their injustice, they were, were stealing from the poor and, and swindling people and, and cheating people and, and not defending the orphan or the widow. The second sin is, is they were offering unacceptable worship to God. Oh, they were going through the motions and doing the sacrifice thing. And, you know, they were keeping the holidays. And they were doing all the externals. But because their heart was not right before God, their worship was unacceptable. 
You need to remember that during Amos's time, these people are rather are doing rather well. It's a time of prosperity. And they have a strong military. They have just conquered um, a neighboring nation. They have water and they have food. But God sets down these judgments that will come upon them in the latter part of Amos 5 in particular. The first judgment he promises is contained in this vision of fire. He has these five visions. The second vision is a vision of devouring locusts. The third vision is a vision of a plumb line where God holds the plumb line. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's a string with a weight in the end. He holds it up to him and says, You aren't vertical, so I'm going to wipe you out. Fourth, he sends a vision picturing Israel as this rotten basket of fruit sitting in the sun, molding and fermenting that needs to be thrown away. And finally, there is this judgment of the Lord coming to utterly destroy them. And in between this vision of this rotten fruit and the ultimate coming judgment, we have our text for today. So if you have your Bibles, look at Amos chapter 8 verse 11, and follow along as I read from the New American Standard Bible. Amos writes, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea. And from the north even to the east, they will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. And as for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. In verses 11 through 14, we are going to extract two prominent points from the text. First, we have described for us the worst famine you could suffer, it's promised, and then the worst famine you could suffer described as far as its effects. The promised famine and the description of the famine. First, let's look at verse 11, the worst judgment you could suffer promised. Here, we are given the time of the judgment promised, followed by the place of the judgment promised, followed by the, what the judgment will not be, followed by what it will be. And notice verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming. Now, whenever you see this behold word, that's a way of God trying to get your attention. That is a verbal shaking. It's when God says, Listen up. I have something I want to tell you. Behold, and what are we to behold? These days that are coming. And look at what God says. When I will send a famine on the land. And here the Hebrew makes it clear that God is causing this famine. It is what is called a causative tense. That is, God is causing this to happen. It is absolutely certain to happen because God is causing it to happen. Every other famine they had ever experienced or ever known included one or both of the features of a thirst for water or need for food. But notice he says it will not be a famine for bread or thirst for water. You see, God is bringing a new kind of famine, one that they had not experienced You see, God warned Israel over and over again for hundreds of years to repent. And at times they did for a little while, but for the most part they did not. And so he sent famines upon them. Turn to Amos chapter 4, and I'll show you some of these famines as Amos describes them. And I want to show you how the people responded. Now, whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you see things like this, don't just say to yourself, oh, God was mean back then. I mean, he was the God of wrath back then, but now he's changed and he's the God of grace. No. Everything God does to Israel, he does for their good to bring them to repentance so he can bless them. 
Every father who loves their son disciplines them diligently. And God is such a father. Look at verse 6. Notice what the text says. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Now you have clean teeth when you don't have anything to eat. That's what he's saying there. Yet you have not returned to me. Look at verse 7. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain in one city and not another city. And I would not send rain um, and one part would be rained on. And while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water. But would not be satisfied. Not quite enough to go around. Yet... You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Look at verse 9. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring. Many of your gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me. God says, listen, I tried starving you. I tried thirsting you to repentance. I tried the bugs and the caterpillars. That didn't work. Look at verse 10. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. That's not good. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me. Verse 11. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And how did he do that? Fire and brimstone. He says, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. That is just this little twig thrown into the fire and it's burning and it's crackling in the fire and it's almost burnt up and I snatched you charred and burnt from the fire of my judgment. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Scary. Very scary. But even in all of that judgment, we see God's love. His persistence and persistence to try and bring them to repentance. Why? So we can be mean to them? No. So we can bless the socks off of them. But they won't have it. So the cursing thing didn't work, so he decides to just give them the altar call, the free gift of salvation. Just say, just seek me. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. Just come. Come to me so you can live. That's all. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live. Look at verse 14. See good and not evil that you may live. And thus says the Lord God of hosts, be with you just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Grace. Here's some grace. Just seek me. I'll forgive you. I am the God who has compassions that are new every morning. Just come to me and I will forgive you. And yet that didn't work either. They just set their places like flint and said, no, no. So then God decided to send these prophets, these irritating prophets, to come and preach divine utterances against the people to try and get them to, to repent. And look at Amos chapter 2, where we find out how they responded to that. Amos 2, verse 10. He says, It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you to the wilderness forty years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, that is, break their vow, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 10. 
chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, the false priest, mind you, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel, and the land is unable to endure all of his words. For thus says Amos, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away from the land of, uh, to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. Go home, is what he's saying. No longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is the sanctuary of the king and the royal residence. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. You know, he's saying, I'm not, you know, professional like you. He says, hey, I'm just a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. I'm just a farmer. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord, you who are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife will become a harlot in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. And about 30 years later, in 722 B.C., and Akrab came in there and plowed them under. Not good. Not good. They still would not listen. God had tried the famines. He had tried the free grace. He had tried the prophets. And they wouldn't listen. And so now, he sends the nuclear bomb. The worst famine that could be imagined. The monster, the king. The beast of famines. And that is what we are going to look at today. He gave them their wish. They didn't want to hear the prophets, so he said, all right. Now, some of you may be sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, Jack, come on. <laughs> um, this Old Testament stuff is, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it makes for good history, but hey, I'm not an Israelite. I'm not living in the land. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't rejected any prophets lately, and I'm not under the curse of Deuteronomy. And so, can't we just go home? No. <laughs> no. There's some owies in this passage that you need to hear. Remember, this is a series on the Word of God. We're trying to look at texts which tell us interesting things about the Word of God. And in this text, the point of application is not that we are Israel living in the land under the curses of Deuteronomy. The point of application in this text comes from the fact that the same Word of God that they had is the same Word of God that we have. And the same Word of God that they were supposed to listen to is the same Word of God that we're supposed to listen to. Their people is the point of application. And if a famine of the word is the greatest famine that God could send upon them, then what does that tell us about the word of God? What does that tell us about the importance, the value, the preciousness, the necessity of God's word? If God's word is so important that by taking it away, it creates the worst catastrophe that could come upon a soul, what does that tell us? It tells us that the Word of God is very, very important. You know, you need to think about it. What would we have if we did not have the Word of God? We would not have the Gospel. We would not have salvation. We would not be able to glorify God, to worship Him in spirit and truth, to grow, to be Christ-like, to have the abundant life, to get to heaven. The irony of this text and how it applies to us is that the people of Amos' time were forced to undergo the famine of the word, but we have volunteered. And that is the tragedy. What is anorexia but self-inflicted famine? What is not taking the necessary steps to... Get God's word in your heart, but to afflict your own soul 
with the monster of all famines. We live in the information age and many people think that just because they have a computer with six Bible programs on there, that man, they know the Bible. I mean, I've got 36 Bible translations. You know, I've got this program. You know, I've got this. I've got that. I've got this information database. Yet to say that you know the Bible because you have that data is like saying you know the Bible because you've got one under your pillow and you sleep on it. I believe many Christians are suffering from this self-inflicted famine and now let me just show you why. Hang on. This is Calvary Bible Church. This church has existed since 1954. It was established by a great expositor of the word, Jack MacArthur, followed by another great expositor of the word, Richard Lau, two godly men who faithfully preached the word in season and out. And if there ever was a church that ever had an opportunity to grow in the word and to have the word of Christ dwell in them richly, this church is it. This is one of the few. Now, let's say right now, God were to strike dead everyone here who couldn't name the books of the Bible. Now, how many of you would still be alive? (laughs) You know who you are. Some people are going, okay, is it Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah? Now, there's some people left, let's say. The rest of you, just pretend you're dead. (laughs) But don't snore. Most of us have memorized John 3.16, you know, one of the most popular Bible verses, you know, around. But how many of you know the context of John 3.16? Who was speaking to whom about what and when? Let's say God struck down everybody who didn't know the context of the most popular verse in the Bible. They didn't know that Jesus, the Pharisee, came to Jesus at night and Jesus was talking to him about being born again and gave him that text. So let's say there's a few left. And what if those few who are left, everyone who couldn't open their Bible and show you three verses in the text of God's Word to support the deity of Christ, one of the foundational essential doctrines of the Christian faith, if they could not show you three texts that supported the deity of Christ were struck dead to, I mean, how many of us would get home? That's a scary thought, isn't it? It's a real scary thought. Would you make it home alive today? Now, what is the problem? Is it that there aren't enough Bibles to go around? There aren't enough Bible studies? There aren't enough churches? There aren't enough Christian radio stations and Christian bookstores and Christian websites and colleges and seminaries? No. No. We can't use that excuse. At no other time in the history of the world have Christians had as much information as they do today. Ever. We have information. We just don't have it in our heart. We have Bibles under our arms, but not in our heart. You know, people can tell you the ingredients of a Big Mac, huh? I mean, I I want you to know, I haven't had a, a TV since 1980, but I know that a Big Mac contains two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and a sesame seed bun. And I know the slogan to American Express, you just don't leave home without it. And I know that the theme of Nike is just do it. And many of you could tell me all about the latest episode of your favorite TV program, or you could tell me all about your favorite hobby in great detail, or all the statistics of your favorite sports team, and some guys can tell you every team. All the data. Where they couldn't tell you the theme of Obadiah, or what Philemon's about, or Jeremiah. The great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said in his work, How to Read the Scriptures with the Most Spiritual Prophet, these words, Some can better remember a piece of news than a line of Scripture. Their memories are like those ponds where the frogs live but the fish die. Scary, isn't it? What's living in your memory? 
what's swimming around in there. The world, things that don't matter, things that won't change you, things that won't keep you from sin, or is the Word of God dwelling in you richly? Now you tell me, are we having a spiritual famine in the churches of America or not? Would you say Christians right now, for the most part in America, are biblically literate? They know their Bible, they know their doctrine, and they can show you it from the text of Scripture? I would say not. And you need to ask yourself, can I defend myself when the Jehovah Witnesses come to the door, when the Mormons come to the door? Can I open up this book and tear them apart? Or do they tear me apart? It's interesting being the pastor because there is nothing like a spiritual prod to have a Jehovah Witness come and just rip you to pieces in your own front porch. And people call up, oh man, this guy came over and oh man, he said this and said this. I tried to say this and I didn't know this verse and I didn't know this verse and, and you know, I didn't know what to do. And, and you, know, I know, well, you know, maybe you could come over. No, no. I'm fighting my own battles. God sent you that person. You get your own sword out. You get that thing sharp. And you wield it yourself. I've got my own sword to wield. Our culture, like Israel, is affluent. We have a strong military. We have a fairly good economy. And we have plenty of food and water. Yet we are experiencing a famine of the word. A self-inflicted famine of the word. Just as many other countries are too. And let me give you three primary reasons why I think this is happening. First, as mentioned earlier, people are voluntarily starving themselves. For one reason or another, they're distracted and have replaced their God-given priorities with worldly priorities, and they just aren't reading their Bible. They keep it on the desk. They let it collect dust. I mean, some people's Bibles, you could you know, put little furrows in there and plant corn. Secondly, there's a lack of biblical preaching. There are many who have never heard an expository sermon, never heard a sermon like the one you're hearing now. Many churches across America just have these weep, wimpy, twinky, junk food sermons. Week after week. Oh, they may go to a church and their pastor may be a good orator and he may be fun to listen to, but when it comes right down to it, the content is shallow. It's like eating celery. There's just no spiritual nutrition. Third, there's a lack of application. People know what is right to do, but they aren't doing it. And knowing the Bible isn't enough. Satan knows the Bible. If you are a Christian, the goal is not merely knowing the Bible, but is... Knowing the Bible and living the Bible because you love the God of the Bible. Now, what can we do about these three problems? Well, the first problem is rather easy. The first problem is easy. You're starving yourself. You don't know why. I mean, when you come to church, you know, you would... You, you want to read your Bible, and if anybody were to ask you during the week, you know, should, should you be reading your Bible, you would say, well, yeah, Christians need to read their Bibles. But then you look in your own life, and you're not. Even though in your heart you're thoroughly convinced that if I were to give everybody a test, and they're walking out today, and true or false, should you read your Bible? It's true. Everybody gets 100. Most people don't read their Bibles. What's going on here? Well, the first thing you need to do if you're convicted about this, is to realize that on your own, you will never meet God's expectations. You can't. You will never pray as much as you need to pray. And you will never read your Bible as much as you need to read your Bible. You will never serve with the motives that you need to serve with. Ever, ever on your own. You aren't good enough, and you aren't smart enough, and you aren't disciplined enough, you don't have the strength enough, you are not able, and you can do it. And I know that doesn't sound very American, and it's not. It's called biblical Christianity. It is the paradox of being a Christian. 
It is the paradox of understanding that in myself, of my own will and effort, I can do nothing to please God. Therefore, it is only when I am trusting in God and helping um, or clinging to God and asking God to help me that He is going to give me the strength to do what I need to do, like read my Bible. You know, I get up here and, man, I just convict you from pillar to post and stem to stern, and you leave all going, man, I want to go read my Bible. And you think to yourself, well, in Nebuchadnezzar fashion, I am going to go home today. And by my strength and my power, I am going to be disciplined. I'm going to read those Old Testament books and get them memorized. And I'm going to learn the context of John 3.16. And I'm going to find those verses on the deity of Christ. I am. And that's why you fail. Because if you trust in yourself, you're going to fail. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15 in his parable of the vine and the vine dresser. In John 15, 5 and 6, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and this word abides is a present active participle, which means he who is continually in the process of abiding in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Christians here are described as people who are continually abiding in Christ, trusting in Christ, asking God for help. Help me read my Bible. Help me pray. Help me do whatever. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8, where Jeremiah contrasts two different men. These two men are men which represent every kind of person on the face of this planet. And he says in Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in a stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. If you are one of those people who has decided to have a New Year's resolution type of Christianity where you resolve to do what's right. You are trusting in yourself. You are making your flesh your strength. And you're probably feeling like you're living in these stony wastes, the land of salt without inhabitant. But what about the person who trusts God? Everything he does, he says, Lord, help me do this. Lord, help me do this. Lord, give me this strength. Lord, give me this wisdom. Lord, Lord, Lord. That is what the Christian life is all about. A constant dependence and reliance upon God. Look what verse 7 says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by the stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Here's the picture of a person who is just dug in deep to trusting God. Like a tree with its roots into the stream never suffers from water. If you have spiritual anorexia or if you are suffering from self-inflicted famine, you need to ask yourself, am I trusting God to help me study my Bible? Or am I trusting in myself? The first step to recovery is trust in God and ask Him for help. Admit your weakness and come to Him and He will give you strength. Secondly, what can you do about weak preaching? And some of you are out there saying, hey, hey, This one doesn't apply to me because I don't preach, and I'm not going to preach, and therefore, what can I do? Well, I'll tell you, there's plenty you can do. First, pray to God and ask Him to raise up godly preachers in this country, in the world. 
men of God who are not only trained and equipped, but who have a desire and passion to preach the whole counsel of God's word. Pray for him to raise up workers for the harvest. Second, pray for me that I would faithfully preach the word. Never tolerate Twinkie sermons, junk food sermons. We often come and hear the phrase in our world, you get what you pay for. Well, as Christians, when you come to church, you get what you pray for. And if you're ever out there thinking, oh boy, help him Jesus. Um, (laughs) If you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I just, I'm looking forward to uh, coming back on a better day. Then you just ask yourself, what have I prayed for? And if you haven't prayed for me, maybe that's not that's why you aren't getting out what you need to, because I need your prayer. I mean Paul needed it, and if he needed it, I needed it a hundred times worse. Finally, what can be done about those who refuse to obey? And maybe you're one of them. You know you're in rebellion, you know you're doing something you shouldn't do. You just need to repent. You need to be scared. You need to fear God. Because his paddle is big and wide, and he hits hard. Our culture is into data, and many come to church to try to get a sermon downloaded. They don't come to church to have their lusts subdued, the cancer of sin carved out of their heart. They come to church because they are wanting some information. They don't want to worship God. They kind of look at their life like a, you know, 20 gigabyte hard drive. And every Sunday or every Bible study, they're, they're sucking up knowledge. And that way, if anybody asks, you know, they can have a knowledge response. But no, you need to do what the Word says, not just collect it. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. And listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote when he was speaking about the very dangerous activity of accumulating knowledge but not obeying it. He's speaking about false teachers and apostates in this section. And he says in verse 20, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome... The last state has become worse for them than the first. He's saying, listen, you people out there who know people who have come to church, who have heard the teaching and preaching of the word, and after receiving it and after escaping the sins of the world, have turned around and gone out there, the last state has become worse than the first. Why? Because now they know what's right and before they didn't. And look at what he says. This is very interesting. Verse 21. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. If you've ever had a dog, you've probably experienced them hacking up some big, rancid, steamy pile of sickening food. And if that doesn't gross you out enough, they turn around and eat it. And you say to yourself, sick! That is the ultimate gross thing! And that's why Peter said it. That's why he quoted Proverbs 26. Because when God brings you away from your sin after you've committed it, and after you brings you away from your sin, and you stop and know it's wrong and do that same sin again, it's like a dog eating its own vomit. It's just the ultimate grossness to God. And then he just throws in a little bit here about the sow. I used to raise pigs. In the summer, it would get real hot. And they would urinate in one corner. And then they'd roll in it. And you're thinking, that is sick. It is sick. 
It's sick anytime you go back to the same sin that you know is wrong. This is how God sees it. Like a dog returning to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. Thomas Brooks graphically portrays the danger of gaining knowledge but not applying it. In the preface to his work, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in this work, he, he lists all of these ways that Satan tries to tempt us, and tempt us and then the remedies to cure the onslaughts of Satan's temptations. And in the preface, he writes this. Hold on to your seat. If it be not strong upon your heart to practice what you read, to what end do you read? To increase your own condemnation? If your light and knowledge be not turned into practice, the more knowing a man you are, the more miserable a man you will be in the day of recompense. Your light and knowledge will torment you more than all the devils in hell. Your knowledge will be that rod that will eternally lash you, and that scorpion that will forever bite you, and that worm that will everlastingly gnaw you. Therefore, read and labor to know that you may do, or else you are undone forever. End quote. Scary. Whew. There's some flames coming out of that, Pastor. The people who lived in the dark ages may have an excuse because they didn't have a Bible. The organized church was corrupt. They couldn't go down to the Christian bookstore or log on the Christian web. But we don't have an excuse. We live in an age where we have tons of resources. I talked to a pastor as I was finishing up my doctoral studies this week from Korea, and he said it was not too long ago that there were no commentaries in the Korean language. None. There are many languages still where there's just no commentaries, no biblical resources. So the Korean pastors would have to study English, come to America so they could read and study the Word of God. I talked to a man from Holland sitting in my class who had to learn five different languages because there was such a lack of good information. So he only learned Hebrew and Greek and French, and German, and English, so he could get at the Word of God. We will put up with an hour commute to work every day, but won't spend 15 minutes reading our Bible. We will be able to work out, you know, faithful to work out every day to keep our decaying outer man healthy, but we will not read our Bibles. We start complaining if the sermon goes over whatever time you think it should end. An hour. <laughs> Hopefully. That was a subliminal message. <laughs> Yet we can sit on hard benches in the hot sun at a sports event for three hours and never complain. Why is this? Why is it so hard to just read our Bible? I mean, the concept is not difficult. Why is it such a difficult task? I mean, what is it? I mean, it's easy to know. We all profess it's right, and very few people are doing it, and what's the deal? It's because of two primary factors. First, we have a sin nature. Our sin nature, our flesh, strives against the thing of the Spirit. There is war waging within our members. Secondly, Satan, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, is working overtime to make sure we don't read our Bibles. Satan wants you to spend lots of time on your outer man. Believe me. He says, oh man, just pamper that thing all the way to the grave. Spend all the energy you can on that thing. He wants you to indulge yourself in the world in your flesh, in your own pleasures, in anything that's fleeting, anything that's temporary, anything that doesn't produce eternal effects, he will encourage you to no end. But when it comes to reading your Bible, have you ever wondered how many things you think of? I mean, it's like the cure. If you've forgotten to call somebody, just read your Bible. <laughs> if you said you'd, you'd do something for somebody or call somebody or send somebody a note... Just read your Bible. Every single thing in my life that I haven't done starts coming to my, you know, I've got to change the oil in the car. You know, I think it's over 3,500 miles. 
And then you start reading, okay, Lord, get focused here. Sorry about that, sorry about that. And then you start reading again, and pretty soon it's like, you know, I wonder if I called so-and-so. I need to do that. You know, I need to get her to think, I'm thirsty. (laughs) And you're just constantly bombarded by these little distractions. Now, what about when you watch TV? For hours, you sit there, you're never distracted, you're just... And what about when you're reading a good fiction novel? Do you ever, as you're reading that good fiction novel, you all of a sudden you stop and think, oh, i got to call somebody. It's like, no way. <laughs> Satan wants you to do those things. Your flesh wants you to do those things. Those are pleasing. Those are pleasurable. Those are worldly. This is why we must throw ourselves at the mercy of God and ask Him to strengthen us. Ask Him to help keep our biblical priorities. He died on the cross for us because we can't do it. And that's why Jesus fulfilled the law. And so by coming to Him, He gives us the strength when we trust Him every moment, every second. Now let's see what it's like. Let's just get some motivation from the second point here and look at the description of this worst famine one could suffer. Look at verse 12 in the text. And notice what it says. And people will stagger from sea to sea, and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Here, this word stagger is used of of people who are drunk, who are so weak and weary that they can barely stand up. They're tottering. Now remember, he's not talking about physical stuff here. This is a famine of the word. And so this staggering here is not physically staggering, it's spiritually staggering. These people are spiritually staggering from sea to sea, from north even to the east. They will go to and fro and they're going to seek the word. I mean, they're just dying. And some of you can testify this. If you've ever um, been in a good, solid Bible-preaching church and then you've moved to Podunkville and there isn't a good church there, You know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh man, we're starving. We're starving. And then you begin to wonder, is it worth it that I'm making $2 more an hour? And I don't have good teaching? You need to think about that. And these people are staggering, and they can't find the Word of God. And look at verse 13. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. And the reason he... He sets these two people up here is because the virgins and the young men are the strongest people in society. The very strongest. To endure the greatest amount of hardship. And even these people, they hit the dust, man. They faint and pass out. That's how bad it is when you starve yourself of the word. And then he says, as for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan... And as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. A sad picture. Dan, Beersheba, Samaria were cultic worship centers. And he says those people who are trusting in their idols, they are going to fall and not rise again. And what is idolatry? I mean, what is idolatry? A lot of times we think of idolatry as, you know, you get the little wooden thing that you've carved and you bow down to it. No. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 15, 23. Samuel is confronting Saul. Saul has refused to utterly um, wipe out everything and put everything under the ban that God said. There's sheep, there's a king spared and all that stuff. You remember the story. And then what happens is is Samuel comes up to it and, and he says this. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Every sin we commit is an act of idolatry. It's basically when you say, Lord, I'm taking you off the throne and I am placing myself there. I am refusing to let you be Lord of my life and I am being Lord of my life and I am doing what I want instead of what you want. That people is idolatry. And here God says, those people who do that, they will come to a serious end. 
You know, God has given this country a great heritage of preachers and teachers and churches. But if we don't take seriously, not only the learning, but application of this word, God will bring a famine of the word. I mean, you look at the great nations that have arisen, like German, France, England. These were strongholds of the Reformation. The greatest preachers and theologians who ever lived came from those nations. And you go there now, and the church, for the most part, is dead. John Knox's church, dead. Calvin's church, dead. Luther's church, dead. Why? Because the generations following failed to heed the warning of Amos. They did not obey, and so God sent upon them a famine, and now those once strongholds of Christianity are now mission fields, some of the most difficult in all the world because people have just inoculated themselves to Christianity. People, how much severe judgment do you think we will deserve if we have all the resources we have and don't do anything with it? We need to think about this. We need to pray about this. We need to examine our lives. We need to cling to God and ask Him to help us be a people of His Word and obey Him in spirit and truth. Thomas Watson said, Many lay aside Scripture as rusty armor. They are better read in romances than in St. Paul. They spend many hours between the comb and glass, but their eyes begin to be sore when they look upon a Bible. God save us from that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the way you have taken care of us. We thank you for Christ who died on the cross because we are sinners and we are imperfect and we can't do it. Father, we need your help. We can't even find the strength to take our own medicine. So, Father, I ask that you would have mercy on every one of us. Help us all to serve you with a whole heart and a willing mind to worship you with our whole being, to strive after you, to learn your word and learn about you through your word that we might give you glory in all we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.